Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we'll be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss the runners and riders and twists and turns in the ongoing Conservative leadership election. And we'll also be joined by Orla O'Connor, the director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, to have a look at why gender quotas, in her view, are needed for local elections as well as elections for the Oireachtas. But first, uh, with me here is our political editor, Pat Leahy. Pat, it's Trump Day in Ireland. Yes, it's exciting, isn't it? And we have to sit in this studio while every one of our colleagues, it seems, are down having fun in Doombeg. But they're the breaks. Um, our president was having a go at their president yesterday. Yeah, very clearly in a speech to the European Congress of Trade Unions meeting, um, he attacked US policy and the policies most associated are very closely associated with uh, Donald Trump. Some disquiet I think in Irish government circles uh, about uh, about this. Now, it's not certainly the first time that uh, President Higgins has pushed the envelope about commenting about public policy or government policy. I wouldn't be surprised, judging on one or two conversations I've had with people who are close to the president, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a more outspoken phase of the president's uh, uh, presidency in his, in, his, in, in his second term. Certainly, I don't think the timing of this was an accident to speak out about US policy the day before uh, President Trump arrives here. I thought a note of slight disquiet in uh, Tonisha Simon Coveney's comments on Morning Ireland this morning when he was asked about the use of the word pernicious in the uh, uh, in, in President Higgins's speech. Certainly nobody in government is going to take on Michael D or tell him what he can or can't say, not least because they're keenly aware that the president is a lot more popular than they are. But I, I, I think it'd be an interesting Do you think Michael D is, is perhaps hoping for a, and it may have happened by the, by the time you, our listeners listen to this podcast for a Sadiq Khan style fusillade of tweets as Air Force One lands at Shannon? Be surprised if we uh, if we see that, but of course, with uh, with Donald Trump, uh, you never know uh, you never know what's coming. But I think in in a, in a broader sense, we're seeing maybe a return to a bit of form uh, of his first uh, of his first term from Michael D. Here, I mean, he was a very vocal critic of European led austerity policies in Ireland or Europe facilitated austerity policies in Ireland during his first term, something which caused the government here, the Fine Gael Labour government, as then was quite a degree of private angst, though as, uh, as uh, you know, people within that administration that I spoke to about it at the time were, uh, were certainly not going to say anything. Uh, say anything in public about it, uh, but um, but I wonder if we might see a little bit more of this from uh, Michael D in the future. Pat, thanks for that. We're going to turn now to the Tory leadership contest. Dennis Staunton, I see the uh, Conservative Party. They've they've adjusted their rules slightly for this long and rather tortuous or extremely tortuous election process, which is about to begin. 
Yes, uh, the, the the way it operates is that the MPs choose two candidates in a series of eliminatory secret ballots, and then those two candidates go before the entire Conservative membership. And what they did was that they changed the uh, the nominating system. Up until now, all you needed was a proposer and a seconder, and then you got onto the ballot. And what they have now decided is you need a proposer and a seconder and the support of six other MPs before you get there at all. And then uh, to survive the, uh, past the first round, you have to get at least 17 votes. And then after the second round to get through, you have to get at least 33 votes. And so uh, and then if all of them reach that threshold, then they eliminate the lowest one in the, in the normal way. But the idea is that uh, a lot of these candidates, I mean, there are some candidates who are still there. Two people dropped out yesterday, James Cleverly and Kit Malthouse. But uh, there's a suspicion that uh, one or two of the can- of the 11 candidates remaining actually couldn't get together these uh, you know, eight people to back them. So I think you might get one or two others pulling out in the next few days. And then certainly once you get past the first round, it's hard to see quite a few of them getting beyond the first round. What would cause these no-hopers to put their names forward in the first place? Well, there are a few um, a few ideas. One is, I think one motivating factor was that they looked at Theresa May and they thought if she can become prime minister, then <laughs> so can I. And so they didn't feel, you know, uh, and a lot of these politicians are pretty confident people about their own abilities anyway. And, you know, and there's a kind of a you never know feeling because the process has tended to be unpredictable in the past. You know, part of the, uh, the old Conservative Party lore is that the front runner never wins. And uh, and so, uh, you know, and because you have this two stage process that there's some chance that something will happen that your you know, your number turns up. And then, of course, the other motivating factor is to get a bit of profile for yourself, maybe to get some supporters behind you. And then when the moment comes that you have to drop out, that you swing your support behind whoever the, um, the, uh, the candidate is that you think is going to win uh, in return for a promise of some decent job in the cabinet. Uh, yes, Pat, because I, I mean, it occurred to me, like I'd barely heard of Rory Stewart before the last week, but he's all over my podcast feed and everywhere else. And I now know more about him than I want to. That's because you're such a social media whore. Um, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I've had my eye on Rory Stewart for quite some time. I think he's a very able fella. I don't think he's going to win this time, but I certainly wouldn't rule him out uh, for the job in the future. I'd be interested to know what Dennis thinks of him. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's right. I think that he's positioning himself very well for uh, the eventuality, for example, that you get uh, a hard Brexit here uh, and that the, the the next premiership ends quickly and in disaster. So I think one way or another, you're going to get a general election probably quite soon, if not this year, then probably sometime next year. And the chances are, uh, no matter how uh, much of a mess Labour is in, that the Conservatives uh, will not win that election. And if that happens, then, uh, you know, it's very possible that the next leader will be somebody who says we need to take this party in a totally different direction. You know, by going purely for the Brexit here vote, we've uh, let ourselves into disaster. That's if that were to happen. And so he would be, uh, you know, as as you say, Pat, well positioned to pick up the pieces then at some stage in the future. I think it's very unlikely that he uh, that he becomes one of the two final candidates this time, despite the fact that he has had a very energetic campaign. But he's just, uh, I think he just doesn't have the support in Parliament, as far as I can see, at least right now, to to really get too far in the race. The, the, the contest is kind of viewed in Dublin, or at least in government political circles in Dublin, as being dominated by one question. Can anybody stop Boris? It, it, it seems 
to me that if once it goes, barring disaster, and you can never rule that out with Boris, but once it goes to the membership, that Boris is probably a foregone conclusion. Um, so the question then becomes, can he, can the MPs stop him? That looks to be unlikely, is it? It probably is unlikely. As you say, the, the things can go wrong. I think the two dangers for him, uh, in, in a way, is one, because he's the front runner, he's uh, holding himself back. So he hasn't given any interviews. And what it'll mean is that the first big broadcast interview, and there is going to be one between the two final contenders or with the two final contenders, with Andrew Neil, who is you know, the best and most difficult interviewer in Britain. And so that the danger is that you pile everything onto this interview. And if it's a disaster, it has much more effect than if you'd actually done six or seven interviews. And it's just one of many. So uh, but on on the other hand, the less opportunity he has to go out and shoot himself in the foot, the safer he is, you know, in another way. So, uh, so, so there's, there's always a risk in being the front runner and playing it in some way safe. Having said that, he does seem to be very much far ahead. What you've seen in the last few days is a number of people, one of the people who was supporting uh, Boris Johnson was pointing out yesterday, a couple of MPs who he said were pure careerists. And he said, these are the people you really always want to see coming over to your side because they're really just going the way the wind is blowing and that's what you know that's a very encouraging sign and so you know there are people coming from all of the kind of political traditions within the party heading for him it's kind of two lanes to get onto the final two on the one hand you've got the hard brexiteers and that's boris johnson Dominic Raab, Andrea Leadsom. There may be an extra one coming in, the person of Steve Baker at some stage. And I think there, uh, Boris Johnson is likely to be out ahead. If he's, say, 20 votes ahead of Dominic Raab in the first round, I think that's the end of Dominic Raab. And Dominic Raab serves a useful purpose for, for Boris Johnson in the race because moderates can look at Boris and look at Raab and say, well, at least he's not as bad as Dominic Raab, who's, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's really... Uh, presenting himself as a very aggressive hard Brexit here. So you've got them on one side. And then on the other side, the question is, who do you get? And you've got uh, a number of people like Rory Stewart and uh, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who are sort of very much on the kind of moderate wing. And then uh, clustered looking for that other spot, really, are the uh, foreign secretary, Jeremy Hunt, environment secretary, Michael Gove, and the home secretary, Sajid Javid. And of them, it looks right now as if it's likely to be a contest between Gove and Hunt. And the argument for Hunt is that he's uh, an experienced politician. He's, uh, you know, he had a very difficult portfolio in health. And although he, you know, the doctors didn't like him, he handled it, he's regarded as having handled it technocratically pretty well. He's certainly a less embarrassing foreign secretary than his predecessor, Boris Johnson. And he's, uh, and kind of the face on the poster is perhaps less off-putting than that of Michael Gove, who has a lot of, made a lot of enemies everywhere he went. He's regarded it, certainly by conservatives, as a very effective, creative and energetic minister. But for example, in education, he upset all of the, um, the, the teachers, and then in justice, he upset various other people. And in, uh, in his current position, he's, you know, he has roused with people because he likes to get, you know, to, to get things done in a kind of an ideological way. But the argument in favour of Michael Gove is that he was a Brexiteer. He was chairman of the Vote Leave campaign and that Conservative Party members are just not going to trust anybody who didn't back Brexit in 2016. 
2016. And so the idea would be that the best person, the person with a better chance of beating Boris Johnson than anyone else would be Michael Gove. And Hunt has this rather strange proposal about bringing members of the ERG and the Democratic Unionist Party along with him when he goes back to Maria, try and renegotiate the withdrawal agreement yet again. Uh, That doesn't sound like a recipe for success. No. And in fact, a lot of them have kind of fairly zany ideas, uh, you know, with uh, you know, and when you look at them, they look crazier. And uh, and so but I think you can cut away an awful lot of what they're saying. What's interesting is that uh, most of the candidates sort of in the center, and by that I include Boris Johnson, are zoning in really on seeking one change, and that is a time limit for the backstop. And so they're not Uh, they're no longer demanding that everything needs to be ripped up. In some cases, they're not even demanding that the withdrawal agreement has to be opened, but just that some kind of an addendum or something can be added to it to say, uh, to, to create some kind of time limit. Now, it seems to me if their opening bid is a time limit, they're not going to get it. But the question then is, uh, can this new leader go to Brussels and persuade the Europeans and the Irish that there is some way of giving something that's like a time limit. Uh, and that could be in the form of a kind of a timetable of bringing in various measures which would make the elements of the backstop uh, non-operable. So, for example, if you had a full veterinary agreement, uh, that would mean that you wouldn't have to have uh, checks on animals. If you had certain other kind of food safety agreements, it would have the same kind of impact. So what you do would do would be that you would take the elements of the backstop and see if you could work out a kind of a strict and binding timetable for agreeing things. Now, the Irish are, are horrified at this idea. They think it's code for a time limit and uh, and they just want to leave the backstop as it is. But I suppose what, you know, what, what the question here is in London is if the new prime minister does go to Brussels and says, look, I would like to get this thing through and then I will be gone on the 31st of October. I think I can get a majority based on this. And this is how I can show you I can get the majority uh, that then uh, the, the Europeans would say, look, let's see if we can give them something. And uh, and so, you know, so a lot will depend on the, on the way the new prime minister approaches it, probably on the identity of the new prime minister and then whether that person is in a position to really uh, persuade the Europeans that they can deliver what uh, you know, the majority in the Commons. And Pat, what are you hearing from your Dublin government sources on on that? Well, the the official line is that there will be absolutely no tampering with the uh, withdrawal agreement, and that's a line that is echoed in Brussels as well. And the sense I get in Dublin is we're still in the kind of exasperation phase with the British. But that will have to move on. So what's going to happen, obviously, is there's going to be a new Conservative Party leader, there's going to be a new Prime Minister. And that will alter the political context uh, when we get to September. And it doesn't seem to be likely that any business will be done until September. And I think I think what is clear, and be interested to see what Dennis has to say about this, but I think what is clear is that anyone... Who, whoever wins the Conservative Party leadership contest will have promised the membership and the country that if they cannot get a new deal from Europe, they will leave without a deal on the 31st of October. And that means that 
context in which those September discussions will take place about, you know, a, a change to the future relationship agreement that would limit the uh, the scope of the backstop. But that or then rules out Michael Gover, Jeremy Hunt, doesn't it? Because they have they have not said that. They have not said that they would be leave amazed. Without a deal on the I'd 31st. be amazed if they don't if they don't say it over the course of the campaign. Dennis, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I think that I think they're, that they're both being quite careful so far about what they say. I think again, though, even if you uh, if you take Boris Johnson, he will he has made that promise, but uh, he can say that he doesn't want to seek an extension beyond October thirty first. But remember, Theresa May didn't want to seek an extension. Parliament told Theresa May to seek an extension. And so it could be the case that Parliament tells Boris Johnson to seek an extension. And but then can it question, make him? Can it make well, him seek an extension? I think, you know, it is, it is actually very hard, despite what all, you know, Andrea lets various people you know, suggest that you could prorogue Parliament and simply push something through against the will of Parliament. This country fought a civil war over that. And, you know, you don't like they take this really quite seriously. And the idea that you could push something through like that and then uh, retain the confidence of Parliament, uh, you know, so that in other words, that you can then do that and then stay in office without having a general election, I think is, uh, you know, I, I just I, it seems to me to be incredible. I think that, you know, and, you know, and it's quite clear that the speaker, John Burko, has made very clear, A, he's not going anywhere, and also that he believes the parliament must be given its say on everything that happens in all of this. You can't have this, something of this importance simply being decided by the executive, and certainly not against the will of parliament. So, I think that's one thing which would mean that, uh, you know, even if Boris Johnson is promising this, that maybe he's not able to do it. And then the question is, he has to go and seek the extension and the Europeans say, OK, what are you looking for the extension for? And if, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron has suggested the only justification is a democratic event, as they call it, a second referendum or a general election. And I would say that for, for Johnson, it would be more likely to be a general election than a second referendum. But that's, you know, that's a little bit further along. I, I think there are two other things you should remember, maybe, uh, as, this, as these months go by. The new leader of the Conservative Party, and particularly if it's Johnson, I think the party will be very forgiving towards him in the first few months because they will want that person to win. And he really, his, his selling point is that he's going to cheer them all up. He's going to take the fight to the Brexit party. He's going to humiliate uh, Jeremy Corbyn, all of this. So you'll have that on the one hand, the Conservatives probably mostly rallying behind him, cutting him some, a bit of slack. At the same time, what you see with the Labour Party is that it's on a very clear trajectory to very quickly, within the next few weeks, move towards a much firmer Remain position, a much firmer position backing a second referendum. And so if you're one of those, say, 30 to 50 Labour MPs who really feel as if uh, you can't support a second referendum, then maybe you're going to be more likely to go and vote for some kind of deal like Theresa May's deal or based on Theresa May's deal uh, than you would have been a couple of months ago because you can't any longer argue that a Labour vote is going to be uh, you know, a vote to carry on Brexit. And so I think that, you know, so you can, could have two things that are operating to some extent in his favour if he were to go seek some kind of compromise and while asking for a time limit, get something that isn't a time limit uh, that's maybe more like a timetable, but 
could look like, you know, could be sold as a time limit, something like this. I mean, it's, you know, again, the, all of that obviously depends on whether Europe and Dublin are ready to engage you know, seriously with any new proposal or whether they're actually just going to say, look, sorry, this, this deal is done and it's really up to you to sort yourselves out in Westminster and get it through. Sounds like you're going to be kept busy for the summer and into the autumn as well. Dennis, no chance of a summer holiday for you. Certainly not. <laughs> On that happy note, we'll leave it. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again soon. Dennis Santa, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. You're listening to The Irish Times. Now, the local elections are done and dusted and the National Women's Council of Ireland has welcomed the increased number of women who have been elected as councillors across the country. But it also says it's very disappointed about the missed opportunity to break the critical barrier of 30% of women's representation in local government. I'm joined by Orla O'Connor, Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland. Orla O'Connor, not a great showing on the gender front in the final results of the local elections. No, I think it's very disappointing. Um, that here we are in 2019 and we couldn't reach 30% of women elected as our local councillors. Um, it, it's not surprising because coming in to the election, the two major parties couldn't reach that quota in terms of candidates. So we knew that, you know, it was going to be that disappointing outcome. And I think that is one of the sort of significant stories of the local elections. The fact that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael couldn't put forward 30% of candidates. Um, and, and, you know, from our point of view in the Women's Council, this is really important. It's really important in terms of democracy, um, but it's also really important in terms of what happens in, in local government. And the fact that for most parties, being a local councillor is also a way to becoming a TD. So it has, you know, it has lots of ramifications, both in terms of local decision making, but also then in, in nationally. And to be at, at this point in 2019, when we've talked so much about, you know, women's rights and women's equality... And we're still here languishing at these really low percentages. So I suppose, Pat, when it comes to Oireachtas elections, there's now a bit of, I'm not quite sure whether it's a stick or a carrot or a combination of the two, but the funding which the political parties get is contingent or some element of it is contingent on them reaching uh, a certain a 30%, 30% threshold in yeah, terms of their candidates. But that's been really effective in and terms worked. of making the parties do it. Now, well, what this, it is has this... led in, in some cases is just candidate women candidates being added simply to make up the numbers but I'm sure Orla would say that you know there's been there's been lots of uh, men candidates over the years who have stood on tickets for no uh, for no apparent gain for uh, for anybody as well so it has been really uh, it has been really effective do we have some numbers on that so would they, I mean the, the big parties have achieved 30% in terms of candidates where are we, are we now at in the Oireachtas in terms of representation so we're at about um, 23% but I mean, the, the issue will be that in the next general election, the quota will be higher because it will be up to 40 percent. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you know, an important piece of this in terms of um, not having reached the quota for the local elections. And isn't the evidence then that the stick and carrot approach, well, we can see it's working in terms of what's happening, but the fact that we don't have it in the local elections, Pat, and we end up with these numbers of which are, what, 10 percent lower than we got in the Oireachtas elections? Absolutely. There's another element, though, I think, which is relevant to the local elections, which is that there's a because the quota 
only apply in national elections only applies to parties and doesn't apply to independents, which make up a substantial part of the candidates that go before uh, voters and make up uh, a substantial part. I mean, independents and small parties got like 30% of the vote in the last general election and there's obviously a lot of independent TDs in the Dáil. But independents are an even greater part of the local mosaic of politics and um, and and one of the objections to to uh, the extension of quotas to local elections by the parties is that it doesn't apply to the independents. Now it's difficult to see how you could apply a quota to independents, which by their nature are sole are sole traders. So I think that's one sticking point about it. Now. You would have thought that it wouldn't be beyond the wit of man or woman uh, to find some way around that, but one doesn't Im- immediately yeah. suggest itself mm. to me. No, I th- yeah, I think you're right about that um, because, you know, we've obviously looked at this in terms of other countries and quotas generally apply to parties or, you know, to putting forward candidates. So, yeah, we do need to come up. And I mean, one of the things the National Women's Council is going to look at is how how also could you work a quota beyond um, political parties? Because I think you're right, it does pose a challenge to it. But I mean, I think one of the, the the things is that, you know, coming up to these local elections, you know, I sat on many interviews and discussions with politicians where there was, I suppose, an assumption that this was just going to happen because, oh, look, you know, we're doing so well now nationally. This will just happen. And then the government came out with their sort of carrot approach where they would give um, a, a grant towards employing an equality officer if uh, parties reached a quota. These that those approaches don't work, and I think this local election proves they don't work. So we do need to look at, and I mean that's why obviously we're advocating very strongly in the women's council quotas because we think they you know they absolutely work. They've worked in other countries. They've worked for the general election. So we think as a, as a first step, the government should move to introduce legislation. To do that at a so local it's a, level. this is a straightforward extension of the current quota requirements that that, that we apply to Oireachtas elections, extending those to local elections to the political parties. Yeah, so it 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 would need to relate to the funding of political parties, mm-hmm. and it would require new legislation. Um, uh, but it doesn't take the, the point in terms of independence. So I think we do need to figure out a way of. Doing I can't that. figure out what that would be, Pat. Though it's, it is it is sort of difficult. no. But um, does, did, have you guys done any work on it, or have you guys? We are the doing it in terms of independence because we're trying to look at that in terms of other. Countries, we haven't found something yet, but we're absolutely going to be finding something because it's. But whatever important. it is, it's not immediately apparent. I no, think, it's is not. The point. And yeah, 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 I would agree with you on that. It's not. But that doesn't take away from needing it for political parties because. Political. I mean, we're looking at eighteen percent of Fianna Fáil uh, elected councillors who are women. Now, they're you know they're one of the largest parties. That's we think that's not acceptable. That's a terrible result for Mio Martin to deliver, isn't it? Eighteen percent. In, in in the year twenty nineteen, I, I think you, you know. I think all parties are, to a greater or lesser degree, are genuinely committed to improving representation of women in uh, at all levels of the party, especially in uh, in 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 the doll. But I don't think for any of them it's the most important thing that they're doing. I don't think it's one of the five most important. Things and I think parties will never admit that. But I think if they were being honest, they want to have more women involved. Uh, uh, but you know, are they prepared? Are they prepared? Say, when it comes to candidate lists, are they prepared to substitute a woman that they don't think will win a seat for a man 
that they think has a good chance of winning the seat? And the answer for most parties uh, in uh, to, to that question is no. So will Michal Martin say, since you asked a question about him, uh, will he want to improve that, uh, improve that ratio of women? Absolutely, uh, he will. But the first thing he wants to do is to get people elected and all parties will uh, and all parties will seek to put the best candidates to get elected or the candidates that they think have the best chance of being elected. They will seek to prioritise them. And it's not just about the selection of candidates. And you see this with some of the token women candidates that, uh, that were put in uh, in uh, in the last election. So the party makes cold decisions about which part, which candidates it's going to back in which constituency. They tend to come, you know, and maybe at the midpoint in a general election campaign or in an, an, any election campaign. It's the kind of when thing we saw with Brendan Smith and Dan Rabbit in the, in the exactly. European election. So, they dropped so Dan Fianna, Rabbit, Fall, Fianna Fall dropped Dan Rabbit in that, in the uh, Midlands Northwest constituency. That wasn't because of her gender. It was because they figured Brendan Smith had a better chance of being elected. So if Dan Rabbit had been polling better than Brendan Smith, I think they'd have backed Dan Rabbit. I think where I would disagree with you is that it's almost looking at how somebody becomes electable is a gender neutral space. And it's not because and, well, the and, and know, just I, I would agree with you. In this. Well, I, I would agree with you at the start when you said about the commitment, because I think that there is this sort of aspirational commitment or commitment that sounds good at certain points by political parties. But if that commitment was really there, we'd be looking at how local government works. We'd be looking at how 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 do you make it? How do you make it? Um, how do you facilitate women much more in terms of wanting to enter local government? And that's things around, you know, um, meeting times, how the system works. Parties would be doing something about that. And similarly, in, in the Dáil, they would be doing much more things about how, how, how do you make this place um, much more facilitated for women to enter? And that's not happening. So the piece as well, in terms of saying, well, you know, who's, who's more electable? When you set it up and in such an unequal environment, then of course you might come to those conclusions that they are doing. And yeah, it's absolutely short termism, but also it says something about their overall commitment to women's equality in every other space. Because unless you get that equal representation, we won't get the advances that we need in childcare in this country. For local government, we won't get the advances in terms of sustainable communities and housing that actually works for communities. Nor will we get, which is such a critical area at the moment, refuge spaces that are just abysmal in Ireland. So there's there's bigger considerations that, that need to be taken by the political parties that at the moment are tick boxes. So I suppose what I think is that when we're talking about this, we need to talk about it in the full round of women's equality. Absolutely. And actually, I want to come back in a moment to the, the whole question of whether these gigs or whatever you want to call them are actually workable for particularly for women you know in the in 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 their day-to-day lives they're supposed to be part-time we discussed this a bit before the election itself and we talked to people who'd given it up because of the 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 difficulties of it but yeah i do want to push back also on on you pat because um at this stage we know um that there is no such thing as a scientific cold objective decision particularly when it comes to things like who is particularly suited for a job or what the best candidate for a position looks like we have enough 
you know, analysis and to know that actually those decisions are highly gendered. So when in a smoke-filled room, in a common somewhere, somebody makes the kind of call you're talking about that this person looks more, it may be it's on the basis of brilliant, uh, perfect, scientifically reasonable data, but somehow I doubt it. I think that gender almost certainly comes into that. I'm quite sure it does. Like, just to be clear, I'm not advocating the position of the parties here. I'm merely trying to tell you what I think is going on in within their internal but what they operations. Think is that what they think is they don't think it's gendered. They go, we made a cold, hard, rational decision. What all parties would say to you, and I think there is, there is a degree of truth in this, is that they're always looking out for good women candidates they can run and they are often very difficult uh, to find. Now, good candidates that you can run, I guess, are very difficult are very difficult to find. But where parties can find women, I think that, uh, you know, because of the prevailing imperative to get more women involved in politics and to, and to run more women, they, uh, they seize on them. But what they care about most is who they can get elected. And perhaps those uh, decisions are made in a gendered environment. I'm sure, they very, uh, I'm sure they very likely are because parties for so long were almost exclusively male clubs and particularly, you know, the, the smoke-filled rooms that you talk about. I think it's done a bit more scientifically nowadays with in terms of polling and testing and, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. But very possibly those decisions there's, are... They're still quite male, aren't they, those back rooms? Of, of of the main political parties. They are. I mean, I'm thinking of who the sort of people who would be in them, but they are. Yeah, yeah. The mach- the operators of the machines, the guys who, who, who crank the levers the and move the dials. Yeah. General secretaries yeah. of all the uh, main parties are male. They are, yes. So yeah. in terms of who is making those decisions, and it, it does... You know, it does reflect, you know, this sort of argument of, you know, we appoint people who are very similar to ourselves. And when you when they are filled with, you know, men in those positions in terms of deciding who is the best, then absolutely that gender piece comes in. It's the same true of the electorate then, because, you know, if people say this is what a TD looks like uh, based upon their life experience, this is what a councillor looks like. It looks like a man in a suit. Mm. Uh, I mean, that permeates to the electorate as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I I thought it was interesting and probably need to look into it a little bit more. But in the Irish Times exit poll, there was, you know, some data in it that showed more women were voting for for more women. There was some correlation between women voting for women. And I thought that was interesting because it's the first time I think we've seen data on that. But but you are right in that being an issue. I mean, we do a lot of work in the Women's Council with young women. And, immediate, you know, when you ask about who's a politician, they will think of a man, you know. And, and that happens a lot in terms of when you look at senior decision making. But it also points to how important it is to have more women in those positions because, you know, this is about changing the structures in our society and it's also about changing culture as well. So it's it's really, it's it's critical for lots of reasons that we have more women and particularly, I think, for for younger women to aspire to. But but I also think it, we have a situation and I mean, you, you said it there in terms of well, we can't find the women. And I, I don't buy that anymore at all, that we, parties can't find the women. I think it's about what, what are they doing and what are they doing well before elections in order to make sure that they have women candidates. And we did see more of that in the general election with the quota because they felt, I think, I think they felt they had to, they had to field, um, you know, that number, the 30% number of candidates. So they did more in terms of a long-term run-up to the election. 
we didn't see the same thing happening for local elections. It was a bit of a, oh, let's let's find course, some women local, to meet. The local elections is the long-term run-in to the general sure. election. That's, so, yes. you know, yep. if, they want, if, mm. if the parties want to be, want yep. to run women with a better chance of a seat, then they needed to be picking them last year, putting resources behind Absolutely. them, promoting them in Absolutely. their local areas. And I think the record on that is fairly patchy. But yeah, it, but some parties did. I mean, if you look at Sinn Féin did, the Social Democrats did, so other parties did. So there's, so it's not a case of we can't find the women mm. because clearly some parties are but, finding the but women. Is, but our two is, largest is, is, parties yeah, have a problem. But this, this is not altogether surprising that the two big conservative parties yes. mm. act in a conservative way. Yeah. This is, in a way, pretty predictable. But just to add to that, isn't it the case, or tell me if I'm wrong about this, that given that there is a disp- even more disproportionate male bias in the independents, that that means that there's something that goes beyond what's happening inside the parties, be they small left-wing parties or large centre-right parties, that there's something in the process which uh, allows or appeals to or provides a smoother runway or gives somebody a no- more of a notion that they might be a councillor um, uh, if they're a man rather than a woman. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's different things going on there. I think, to first of all, I think to run as an independent um, is, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to run an independent if you don't have that sort of political background behind you. If, you know, if that hasn't been there for a long time. So I think it's harder for women to run as independents, particularly if they're entering politics new and there isn't a whole family dynasty going on. I also I also think it, it, it's probably worth looking as well at the rural-urban piece, because I think that also has an impact in terms of the independents as well that have got elected and um, probably more so in in rural constituencies because there's a huge disparity in rural constituencies um, in terms of the numbers of women elected. I mean, some of the, I mean, I'm just, you know, Longford is only one, there's only one woman out of 18 seats in Longford. Mayo is three women out of 30. So, so there is, there's a rural-urban piece, I think, as well. Is that cultural? How how would you define that? Why why is that? Well, I think some of it is, is about what we've just said in terms of, the, the two main political parties. I think it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. And I also think as well, we do need to look at how we run local government. And we know from working with women's groups who are in rural areas, you know, there's a lot of travel involved. It's all at night time. It's very difficult if you have young children. So it's, it's a harder place to run in as well. Yeah, well, it's we also, It's also very, very difficult if you're talking about independence. It's, it's, we group them all together, but you you can't really consider independence as yes. a sort mm. of an homogenous political mm. grouping True. because yeah. they come from, uh, you know, I mean, I've often made the point about the independence in the Dáil containing probably the most mm. right wing and the most left wing people in the Dáil. So they come from entirely different political hinterlands, entirely different social and political cultures. So you can't really... Uh, and this is, I guess, one of mm. the, the difficulties if you're, you know, trying to address the uh, the lack of women amongst the independence groups is that different solutions will work for different types of independence. Is, is, is uh, there a thing, I hesitate mm. to do this, but I've started, so I'll do it now, that men are uh, uh, men, men are better bullshitters 
and that this is part <laughs> that this is this is part of the uh, uh, it's a contributory factor. I mean, we know that men are more likely to stand up and talk at length. I, I'm a perfect example myself on subjects of which perhaps they're not entirely brief to an extent in which women are less inclined to do so. And there's something about the nature of particularly running as an independent without party infrastructure behind you that demands a certain um, hubris. Let's put it that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, if I said that, I know my Twitter would go wild there. So, <laughs> I mean. I think, as I said, I, I do think it's particularly in terms of a woman running independent as an independent who doesn't have a political background, who's not coming from a political family. That is a hell of a lot harder. Mm. Um, and we, we, we yeah, uh, so I suppose that's why I think it is important th- that we can look at how do we operate a quota that can run across the board that would also include independence, I think. And part of that might be putting supports in for women to run independent. I'm talking about financial supports because it's a lot harder to do it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I do think we need we, we need to look at the independent piece. But primarily, I think it is really important to go back to go back to the quota legislation in terms of trying to redress this imbalance. I'm not necessarily sure men are better bullshitters than women, but I think they're certainly more prone to it, would be my observation. That's a fine distinction, but probably correct. But, I mean, there is actually... I think women prepare so much for it when they go forward. I mean, that's one of the things I would notice a lot for women who decide to go forward as candidates. They have given this so much consideration. And then when they go out and they do it, the preparation they put in for their meetings, the research they do, I I would certainly see that. And, And, you know, Part of that is reflective from our work that we do around, you know, women going forward for promotion, women on boards. It's one of the reasons why women are actually doing, you know, when they go for promotion at equal levels to men, they tend to do better because of that preparation and work that's put in. Whereas there is more of a sense maybe of entitlement from a man in terms of getting the the position and the work isn't put in in the same way. So maybe that's some of, you know, what's what's being reflected. Well, actually, politics requires, I mean, the very act of putting yourself forward for election demands a certain exaggerated ego. And our, the democratic system requires that because if everybody was too diffident to put themselves forward for, uh, for election, to believe that if I am there, if I am elected, things will be better for everybody, um, I, I, think it, I think it requires that. Now, whether men are more prone to that or not, I don't, uh, uh, I, I don't venture an opinion. But I think it's certainly true that um, uh, it's certainly true that that politics requires that. And there are perhaps, you know, there are cultural factors which uh, suggest to boys and to men that they are uh, that they're better suited to that. Maybe that's part of what needs to change. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is that when you get when you get more women elected, We've seen it in the Dáil in terms of some of the cross-party working that's happened. You know, there's a women's caucus where, you know, women are women TDs are working across parties. We're seeing it as well in the Shannad where some of the independents there, mainly led by women, by Senator Alice Mary Higgins, um, <coughs> have brought together an independent group. There's, a, there's more collective working, I think, um, which has really brought huge dividends in terms of progressive policies that have come out of the, of the Iraq. This from our point of view in terms of women's equality. Such so, as? 
Well, I think the cross-party working that happened on abortion, I think, was really positive in terms of the Joint Oireachtas Committee. Uh, I think that that's a really good example of how, and and it was, you know, w- women who were that, leading that That was an issue that there was no whipping on, though, which facilitated it, I guess. There wasn't, yeah, but I think it's a good example. And I think the caucus is a good example of where you've got There's women no whipping in the big working parties, cross-party. And, and one of the things that they've initiated is a whole survey within the Iraq that's now on sexual violence, which I think is, is, a, is a very positive thing in terms of the culture within in there. And that goes back to what, I suppose, how do you change the culture in terms of attracting women to go forward for politics? You're going to be holding a meeting this week to discuss these issues? Yes, we are holding an event tomorrow because it's 120 years of local government in Ireland. And we're looking at we're looking at the experiences of women who ran in the local elections and who didn't get elected and those who did. And particularly, we're looking at the diversity issue because, yes, this is about getting women elected, but it's also about getting women who are, you know, representative of, of different communities. So there's going to be some traveller women who didn't get elected this time. There'll also be Hazel Chu, who got a Green Councillor who's, who's elected. Um, so, so it'll be a combination of, of women looking at the experience and looking at the barriers and the difficulties and putting it up to government in terms of what needs to change to get more women elected. Orla O'Connor, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Orla and to Pat and to Dennis for joining us earlier. Thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon and to all of you who've been in touch with me. Your messages are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. 